everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Vaikra is titled Kedushas in the Details and explores the way these laws try and elevate each of our most basic human functions, food intake, bodily functions, relationships, spaces of worship, and our use of time. Make sure not to miss Matan's pre-Pesach programming with great Shurim online and in person. Check out the Matan website for more details, www.matan.org.il. I may be appearing in those Shurim as well. This week's episode has been donated by Serena Goldstand in memory of her mother, Bella Bat Yitzchak Baruch, in commemoration of her first yard site. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now, please be in touch. Parshat Sav can be divided into two topics. Chapters 6 and 7 delineate the procedures for the five main types of korbanot. Chapter 8 includes the miluim, or the seven-day ceremonial inauguration of the mishkan. Parshat Vayikra addresses the individual, who, motivated by religious stirrings, offers korbanot. Parshat Sav addresses the officiaries, the koanim of the Mishkan, Aaron and his sons, who must bring the sacrifices themselves. This difference is key to understanding the different ordered listings of the Korbanot in Vayikra's first two parshiot. In Parshat Vayikra, the ordering begins with sacrifices that are self-motivated, the Ola, Mincha, Shlamim, and then continues with obligatory sacrifices, the Chatat and Asham, because the focus is on the individual. We begin with a human motivation to come closer to God. Only after do we move down to the person who was forced to bring a korban of his behavior. In Parshat Sav, the order is fixed differently. The first four classifications, Ola, Mincha, Chatat, and Asham, are all grouped together in that they have a degree of sanctity which precludes taking the food of the sacrifice in the precincts of the Mishkan. They are Kodshei Kodashim, highly sanctified. But the Shlamim sacrifice can be eaten by a non-priest anywhere in Yerushalayim. They are Kodshei Kalim, lightly sanctified. The order reflects the group being addressed. In both listings, we move from higher level to lower levels. But when it comes to the nation, we talk about human motivation. When it comes to the Kohanim, we speak about what they are responsible for, the degree of sanctity, and what they will allow to leave the temple grounds, and what parts of the Korban they are allowed to eat. In other words, the details in Parshat Sav are much more focused on the Kohanim themselves and on their work and involvement in bringing of sacrifices. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with returning guest Rabbi Yitzhak Blau, who I first had the chance to speak with for episode 68 on Parshat Varim. Rabbi Blau is Rosh Yeshiva at Yeshivat Oraita and also teaches at Midrash at Lindemaum. He is an associate editor of Tradition, the Journal of Jewish Thought, and the author of Fresh Fruit and Vintage Wine, The Ethics and Wisdom of the Agada, and has published many articles on Jewish thought. Rabbi Blau, it's great to have you back. Thanks. It's fun to be here. Our first conversation focused on the beginning inklings of Torah Shabal Peh in the book of uh, Devarim. Since then, you totally piqued my interest and actually gave a few classes on it uh, in my teaching. So thank you for that conversation. And we've come back for the book of Vayikra. Uh, our first episode dealt a little bit 
with the question, the fundamental question of what is the purpose of korbanot? Are they a response to the forms of worship in the ancient Near East, or are they sort of more specific to our Jewish avodat Hashem? And today you're going to bring us into sort of an, a, several other angles that I think we rarely think about, uh, even though they're, as you showed me right there in the Ramban and other commentaries, uh, other angles and questions about korbanot as a as a system of worship of God that I think are going to be enlightening for our listeners. So why don't you bring us into that wherever it feels right? Okay, sure. L- let me just say first that uh, I once taught Vayikra in Flappish High School in the 1990s, and my goal was to convince the students that Vayikra is interesting and meaningful. <laughs> so uh, we're going to pursue that goal again today. A, wor- I- a worthy goal. Okay, great. So if we ask about the purpose of the Mishkan or the Mikdash, so interesting, interestingly enough, the Rambam in Mishnah Torah actually describes it as a house where you bring sacrifices. And given Rambam's view in Mornavuchim, that's interesting that that's how he describes it. But the Ramban in the beginning of Truma in Shemot has a totally different take. And here's where sometimes details such as sequence can really be telling. Uh, the Ramban is interested in the order that the Kalim are presented in Shemot. And the first Kli is, of course, the Aron. Now, if I am thinking that the sacrifice is the center of what's going on, I think many of us would say the Mizbeach should really be the opening uh, kli, right? That is where sacrifices are brought on the altar. And yet it begins with the Aron, uh, which was less involved in the day-to-day Avodah. So the Ramban says that the Mishkan is really about a place to encounter God. That's, from that perspective, the Aron is actually the primary kli, and I guess Carbonot would just be a means at that point for this encounter. And just to point out, I think this has a lot of implications. Uh, a, the Parshanut question, why the Aron is first. B, uh, for the Ramban, a lot of the Mishkan is this continuity of the experience of Sinai. It's almost we have this grand revelatory experience, this amazing divine encounter, and we'd like to keep that going. And we keep that going in the Mishkan. And notice the Luchot, which are perhaps the symbol of the encounter at Sinai, are in the Aron. So this, this tremendous encounter that we try to carry with us, as it were. And that also gives meaning, I think, even to the larger question of Sefer Shmot in general. I realize it's Vayikra now that we're talking about, but one might wonder Shmot might, could end with Harsinai. But Shmot really ends with the construction of the Mishkan. And for the Ramban, that's terrific, right? The story does not end with the story of Sinai. The story ends when we're able to have this encounter in an ongoing fashion. So again, just to review, the Ramban really gives us three interesting themes here. That the Mishkan is essentially about the encounter with God, that that explains its placement in, the Oron's placement in the Kilim, and that also explains the whole theme of Sefer Shemot, and why Shemot ends with the Mishkan and doesn't end with Yitziat Mitzrayim or Matan Torah. I, th- I think it also has implications for the broader question of, well, if we, if someone doesn't relate to sacrifices, right, or they're unsure about how much of that will return in a future date, it also assumes that there's a function to the mikdash, which doesn't only have direct implications for korbanot. And I think that that's a very meaningful way to look at it, that it's a, first and foremost, it's a place to meet God. And the way or the manner or the expression that you go about doing that, may, maybe it's subject to change, maybe not. That's not the Ramban's uh, topic right now. But I think that it's a really important perspective because it sort of can 
it reminds us that this place has m- much more meaning than just a place where we bring Corbinot. That, that's a great, a great point. Uh, let me say it even on two levels. If someone's uncomfortable with the idea of sacrificing animals, which I admit I'm not uh, pining for, number one, you could talk about flower offerings. But even more importantly, as you're saying, Yosefa, one could talk about it as a place of other kinds of religious experience, meaning when Shlomo describes the Beit HaMikdash and Malachim, he already talks about it as a place people will pray. So apparently prayer is not just a substitute for the sacrificial order. Prayer is part of the Beit HaMikdash experience. So I totally agree. This is very helpful for those who uh, want to uh, you know, think about the Mikdash in much more positive terms and struggle with the idea of animal sacrifice. I also think that the question of, of quantity, right, that we say that, well, there's so much of the Torah that deals with, uh, with the Korbanot. But as I was thinking, I've been preparing for these episodes, that we have many, many, many chapters that deal with the building itself and the, and the Kelim. There are, let's say, there are about 15 chapters that deal with Korbanot, but it's it's a little bit less massive than we tend to think. I'm not saying get rid of Korbanot. I'm not there. I am a vegetarian, but I think that this idea of looking at the Mishkan or Mikdash as having these two prongs of being a connection with God and the manner that we that we did go about it then was through sacrifices, it's important to keep them separate, especially in a modern age where many people struggle. And so we don't have to wipe out the whole concept of a mikdash, but this, there, there may undergo some sort of shift in, in the means by which we create that connection. Yeah, I totally agree. I'll just say one other thing. Uh, sometimes it's hard to read all the details of the sacrificial order, but often those details could have meaning that extends way beyond the issue of carbonate. We might not get to it today, but I'll just point out even like where you shech the animal and how many days the person has to eat from the carbon. Some of those details could come back and be meaningful. So even if someone doesn't relate so much to carbono, don't give up on the details. Yes, totally. Okay, so so with that, so let's uh, let's think about our our next question about how korbanot relate to the idea of, of sin or, or how we're supposed to feel, let's say, when we're bringing the, these sacrifices. Okay, so there's a absolutely fascinating split between the Ramban and Rav Hirsch on this issue. And I'm actually going to ask a question which I don't know the answer to. Maybe Yosef knows the answer. We'll find, we'll find out in a minute. When the Ramban is describing what he thinks the purpose of the sacrificial order is, this is the Ramban in uh, Parak Aleph, Pasuk Tet, and Vayikra, the Ramban focuses very much on sin. He talks about different parts of the body involved in sin and how we identify the animal being sacrificed as a substitute for the human being who sinned. It's almost as if we really should be sacrificed due to our transgressions, but we're able to somehow you know, vicariously handle it through the offering of an animal. So that is a powerful idea, but here's what I've wondered about for years. It kind of views the chatat as the paradigmatic carbon, the sin offering, but really there's several categories of carbon. So just to talk about three, perhaps the three essential categories, we have a chatat, a sin offering, we have an ola, right, the burnt offering that is totally consumed, and we have a shlamim. And if we look at the three of them, I think the Ramban could work for the Chatat and even for the Ola. I'll explain why. But it's not clear to me at all how the Ramban would explain the Shlamim. Let me just explain for a second. The Chatat is very clear. There's a one-to-one correspondence, meaning I do sin X and I bring a Karban. And as Yosef alluded to before, uh, there's no such thing as a voluntary sin offering. I can't say I'm feeling guilty today. I'm going to come to the Beit HaMikdash and bring a chatat. There's really a one-to-one correspondence between my wrongdoing and my karban. 
Now, Ola does not have a one-to-one correspondence. I can't volunteer it. But the Pasuk does say, V'nirtzalo lechaper alav. I mean, the, world, the word kapara, atonement, does appear in the Ola context. And indeed, Chazal have suggestions what, it, what an Ola atones for. So, so far, I think the Ramban is still looking good. But I'm not aware of any Pasuk or really any Chazal that links a Shlamim with sin. So uh, it's kind of curious to me uh, what the Ramban would say about that. Uh, he, would he view Shlamim as kind of like a side theme, a second theme? But again, but for the Ramban, I think this is the important point that emerges. And here's again where we could get beyond Korbanot to religious life in general, right? How does a person think that he approaches God? You could have a more positive, confident outlook, a more negative uh, uh, d- lowliness outlook. So it sounds like the Ramban would say in the world of Karbanot, humanity approaches God as sinful humanity. That is our essential posture before the divine in the Mikdash. We are sinful humanity looking for atonement. Well, I, I don't have a response to how the Ramban would fit with the others. Okay. I, I agree. I think that there is a basic assumption that while some of the Korbanot have a sort of a neutral or even festive element to them, that the basic assumption is that they're there for some sort of atonement, meaning we wouldn't need this whole process just to celebrate God, meaning we would find some other way to do it. So I don't have an answer within the Ramban. I'm not familiar with other commentaries of his that touch upon this, but I think that that also underlies the basic question of why we had a Mishkan, right? That whole question of was it there for atonement or was it there for connection also underlies the creation of the whole building itself. And I think that the Ramban simply goes according to this opinion. I would have to match it up. That's actually a great point I had not considered to link the ongoing purpose of the Mishkan with its original construction, that those that think it's a response to Chet HaEgel would then, from its inception, already think of the Mishkan as a way of overcoming sin. So that's a really interesting point. I actually think the Ramban does not line up, but I really like the point in any case. <laughs> so I couldn't remember back to it, but I... Exactly. Again, he may not be totally consistent, but I think that the idea of a certain amount of atonement, even in the Ola situation, when we largely don't think about it as a sin situation, that there is some sort of element there, something in the whole imagery and in the whole behavior of a a korban that we sort of can't seem to get away from the idea that there's an element there of atonement. I will say, by the way, that I'm totally botching up the semantics. In the last episode and introduction, I spoke about korban and that we shouldn't really call it a sacrifice. And and somehow it's not flowing well when I'm doing the English and Hebrew together. So I'm going to try and stick with Korban, but I do want to say that sacrifice in the way that we mean today to, to give something up is actually a newer meaning of the word sacrifice. It's not actually part of the original uh, Latin meaning, but either way, we'll, we're, gonna, we're flowing back and forth between those two ideas. I do also want to add that this Ramban that you brought has, before we get to Rav Hirsch, right, we're still in the middle of, of speaking about them, really has echoes also in modern thinkers. Rosel Vechik writes about this as well in On Repentance, uh, just a, a sentence here or there. But he says, when a man brings a sacrifice after having sinned, he must imagine that it is he himself who is being offered upon the altar. When the blood of the animal is sprinkled, he must imagine that it is his own blood that is being sprinkled, that his own hot blood, which in his passion drew him to sin. I mean, you can keep going, but the, it's very, very similar to the idea that the Ramban offers, and, and Sefer HaChinuch also offers a similar explanation. So the Ramban here had a lot of popularity, the idea that we're not stam bringing an animal and killing something, but that it, it actually is some sort of substitution for what was supposed to happen to us. So that idea has quite a bit of popularity.
So in contrast, we have Rav Hirsch, who says... Yes, Rav Hirsch was definitely a, a more optimistic thinker, one of the most optimistic rabbis. So he is very adamant that Chatat is not the paradigmatic karban. Uh, he actually goes with Ola, but just to give a bit of background, he does not so much associate Ola with sin. Even though Ola has a kapra element, he would probably say that the atoning element is not the essence of the Ola. The essence of the Ola is a striving for spiritual heights. That's the essence. And he has some interesting arguments why the Ola is the karban. Uh, one argument he makes is that you can voluntarily give it. You can voluntarily give a sin offering. But more importantly, he points out that it is the daily karban. Right. If you ask what sets the baseline for the sacrificial order, you might say, well, it should be the karban tamid. And notice the karban tamid is an ola. It's an ola that we bring in the morning, ola we bring in the late afternoon. So that is setting the tone for the entire sacrificial order. And indeed, the mizbeach upon which we bring all the animal offerings is called the mizbeach ola, not the mizbeach chatat. So we seem to be highlighting the ola as kind of the, the paradigmatic offering. Uh, and once that's true, in Reverse's view, that shows that it's really not about sin. And here I think we really get a different viewpoint and a split, which, as I said, is way beyond the sacrificial order. And I think you might even call it that, no, if you want to do a Slobodka versus Navardic. Like, what attitude do you have to how religious people present themselves before the Ribbono Shalom? We're for the Ramban, we are essentially sinful creatures uh, seeking atonement. For of Hirsch, we are, no, we have a lot of faith in what human beings can produce, and we're striving upwards. We're not, uh, obviously, sin is part of the world, but it's not our primary uh, mode of encountering God. Yeah, I think that he says it very nicely. I think also that the Ola is the sort of the basic form of all korbanot. He also explains that any korban that you couldn't give otherwise, you can then turn it into an Ola, which I think is also a pretty nice proof for the idea of 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 Hirsch. And also I think the fact that Sefer Vaker opens up with the Ola is also very strong proof for, for that opinion and definitely fits with his much more positive worldview. And in general, he looks at korbanot as a, a much more symbolically and trying to understand how every detail really has like religious import into our lives. You said not necessarily if we're bringing those, those korbanot or, or not. One other piece that I would add in there to sort of also support Rav Hirsch's idea is that we really have a big question when it comes to the korban chatat, whether we describe it as a sin offering from the word chit, or we describe it as a purification offering because from the word chitui, to purify. Because we have many instances where a person is commanded to bring a korban chatat and they are not... They don't. They haven't sinned. Again, the famous example is always the Yoledet, right? But there are many others as well. And I think that this question, uh, sorry, the woman who, who gave birth is a, another example of that, of someone who clearly we don't assume sin. Of course, Chazal come and say, well, it could be because she, you know, cursed and didn't speak nicely as she, as she was uh, in the process of giving birth. But I think that uh, that this question, I'm not going to provide an answer. There are different approaches, especially in, in modern scholarship uh, regarding this issue. But this question about what really is the the sin offering, I think it's also worth mentioning that someone who sins intentionally can't bring a korban chatat, 
which I don't know, for some reason, something I didn't think about for a very long time, which is kind of the, the image we have when all the later prophets, you know, get angry, Amos and Yishayahu, and they get angry about the way people are using korbanot. Well, it seems, oh, well, they're doing what they want, and they're bringing korbanot. But at its basic uh, halachic or, or legal level, a person can't do that. You, you have this option of atonement when it was an accident in some way or another, again, in a more conscious accident or less conscious accident. But I think that, that that also is an important point, that when we talk about sin here, we're not talking about an evil person who says, I'm going to be evil and bring a sacrifice. So I think that all of those sort of, they do, they sort of support a more positive perception of korbanot, like Rav Hirsch. Yeah, I, I agree with the point. It is somewhat convincing that not every chatat is related to sin. As you mentioned, you have the mother who gives birth, but I think even cases of Nazir and Mitzora raise the question, is it really about sin? And maybe the better translation is cleansing. I'll just say that even if it's cleansing, it could be that sin is one of the things that requires cleansing. So I wouldn't totally nullify the sin No, 100% I think that sin is one aspect of the Korban Chatat, but I think that there are other aspects of it as well. People can feel, um, you know, sullied in their life and not because they intentionally did something wrong. That's the basic function of humans. Right, very good. By the way, I would also say that uh, once we're connecting different Rambans, there's a Ramban that tries to explain why a shogeg requires a sin offering. Because again, you could say the person did not intentionally do the wrong thing. And he has two themes of what, uh, what the wrongdoing could be in shogeg, just very briefly. One is that the person could have been more careful, that really negligence is a transgression on some level. Or that the person is sullied by the action with or without intent. That somehow it leaves its mark no matter whether you were responsible or not. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that maybe the Ramban needs to work out the sin because for him the sin is a more, you know, significant theme. And it would be interesting to check, you know, Yosef's point, like how would different Mepharshim relate to all those chatats that don't seem sin-related? Do you feel a need to bring sin into play there or can you deal with it without a transgression? I mean, I think we also we will explore it as we as we go along. And in, in general, even the uh, the flip side of, of Korbanot, which is... Tuman Ta'ra, which we'll get to in, in other parshiot. I'll just recall an idea that came up in an episode from last year with Yael Leibowitz. It was about that in, in Sefer Vayikra, we also have two different kinds of impurities. We have ritual impurity and moral impurity. This is Radatz Hoffman points this out and, and, and also moderns as well, that even when it comes to impurity, you have impurity that results, that's something that there's something technical that happened and therefore you're impure and you have to get rid of it if you want to go to the Mikdash. And then there's impurities that leave a stain on someone's character and they're not ones that you can expiate in any kind of clear way. So I think that that, that sort of dynamic or dichotomy when it comes to impurity, it also makes sense if it's reflected in in the Corbinot themselves. So, and that's going to come up in later episodes. Great. You, everyone has what to look forward to. <laughs> Impurity. Woohoo. <laughs> okay. So, as after we've spoken about those those initial points, let's uh, let's move forward with the role of the person who actually brings the Corban. What what is their role in this process? Okay, so that's really something that's fascinated me for years. Uh, I tend to think of Judaism as not being a spectator sport that you have to do things yourselves. And I think in a world without a Beit HaMikdash, that's really predominantly true. There's no sense of, you know, outsourcing your religious life to somebody else, like maybe a little bit in Hasidic communities. But really, in terms of the halakhic system, it doesn't work that way. I'll even say you, you see this in um, certain mitzvot, where even though we have a principle of shomea ka'one, that I could be yotze through somebody else's performing it for me, 
certain mitzvot were really uh, negative about that possibility. We don't want that to happen in tefillah, for example. Chazar shots is really just for someone who can't pray on their own, right? Really, the human encounter with the divine should be a personal thing. It's not something I can have somebody else do for me. Like, really, Shema, I should say myself. Someone else should not affirm uh, my essential principles for me. So uh, I feel very confident saying that Judaism is not a spectator sport. But would I be a teacher at the time of the Beit HaMikdash? I might be uh, challenged more, right? Because there we do seem to have, like, the Kohanim are the ones who are doing all the Avodah. And uh, the owner, the Israel, who's bringing the Karban, seems not involved. So I've been trying to collect ways that the Israel is involved over the years. Uh, maybe I'll just mention three today. Okay, one is there's is one of the four essential avodot is to do shechita, to slaughter the karban, to shek the karban. And there's a famous halacha, shechita k'sheira bizar. There, a non-Kohen could do the shechita. Now, one could claim that that semu reveals that shechita is not an avodah or a less significant avodah. But be that as it may, it is something a Yisrael could do. So in theory, the owner could do the avodah of shechita. Uh, secondly, there is something called smicha that happens on a karban, uh, where the owner places his hands upon the or her hands upon the karban, and then, uh, if it's a sin offering, let's say, would then do confession at that point. Okay, which also raises the question: uh, what they do when it's a shlamim. I, if I recall correctly, the Rambam says you say divrei shevach, you praise God when you're doing smicha on a shlamim. But in any case, that would also be a very profound religious act of the owner. Okay, so we have shechita in theory. We have smicha, and then there's an idea, not about the owner per se, but that groups, there's the mamadot and the mishmarot. So people of, Yisrael, of Am Yisrael would just uh, be in Yerushalayim, you know, reading from the Torah, and if you look at the Gemara Tani, that was a means of trying to involve all of Am Yisrael in what's going on in the Mikdash. So I think... What, meaning they would be present? or what, uh, well, would they be? If I recall correctly, they're not in the Mikdash proper, okay. but I believe they're in Yushalayim uh, reading Torah passages, and I'm fairly certain that the Gemara talks about their involvement in the larger Mikdash enterprise as a result of this. So I would say it's true. There is a little bit more of a sense, maybe not a little bit more, there is more of a sense of kind of outsourcing uh, some religious endeavors in the world of the Beta Mikdash, but even there, I would say, there's always an attempt to make sure that uh, the individual is not a fully passive spectator, right? Again, either through smicha or through shkita or through these mamadot mishmarot, right? There is a sense to uh, involve Am Yisrael in the religious experience of the Mikdash. So it's interesting. I have two thoughts in response. One is, is that depending on the kind of Jew you are, some people are happy to be a little bit more passive. Maybe not those who are uh, intended to be Rosh Shiva, but I think many people would actually like that idea, that they bought their animal, they decided what they were bringing, they came, and someone did more of the dirty work for them. I would, I would think that some people might be okay with that. Uh, that's thought number one. Thought number two is that I you mentioned briefly the Shlamim before, but the Shlamim is an entirely different enterprise. And the Shlamim is the only korban where the person who brings it also eats it itself. And this whole element of like eating from the korbanot or having a meal afterward, you know, we know how much that's a central facet of our Judaism today, even without the actual action of, of korbanot. 
Um, but this, I imagine, was also a very central piece of for those who were bringing shlamim that we have this idea of zevach, which really only it's it's, it's sort of like own idea that I don't know. I think we're going to get into it today, but that's the way it describes the korban shlamim. The korban shlamim is really the only one that's really this partnership that both the the kohanim and the Israel eat from. So I think that that was another way that people probably were also involved in this process was by either eating themselves or even you know there are those also in Am Yisrael who take pleasure in knowing that they fed others, right? So when the Kohanim ate that maybe they had some some nachat from that first of all I'm curious if other people doing the dirty work was a joke or not because uh, <laughs> uh, I imagine it was a bit messy there in the Mikdash yeah but, uh, you made a great point I should have put that on the list just to further the point eating is a crucial part of uh, the mitzvah meaning for Kolkwaki the Chazal say Kohanim ochlim ubalim kaprim. That the atonement is finalized when the Kohanim eat. Mm-hmm. Now, in an Ola, no one really eats, but in a Chatai, you'd have the Kohanim eating. And as mentioned, in the Shlamim, you'd have the Kohanim eating and Am Yisrael eating and the Bala Karban. And that would also be part of uh, not just, you know, a voluntary dinner, but it would be a mitzvah performance. So definitely, definitely throw in the Achilat Karban as something else that could involve, like, the larger community. Yes, I think that those are all interesting pieces. And I also think that we've become very used to, without this hierarchical building and structure, we've become used to the idea that we are the masters of our own Judaism. But I I would tend to think, again, being a more Bible person, that it was a lot more hierarchical then than it is now. And so that idea, you know, we as moderns want to feel involved and active and, you know, have agency and all those other nice words we use. But I would imagine that initially to the beginnings of Am Yisrael, certainly coming out of being slaves, they weren't necessarily so focused on their active role in the process. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Maybe, maybe I'm trapped in Western modernity insisting on my agency. <laughs> but uh, I have to see if I could get beyond that. <laughs> That's okay. I also like my agency. Okay, so maybe we'll we'll round out the conversation today with uh, maybe speaking about a specific korban, maybe about mm-hmm. the toda, korban toda. Again, there are many details that can be offered about many different korbanot. We've mentioned a little bit about the shlamim, about the fact that there's sort of there's something even more covenantal and joint about those. We've spoken very briefly about the central debate regarding a korban chatat. Uh, you know, what is the element of sin in it? What is the element of purification? Uh, but I guess we haven't really mentioned the Toda. So what are, what are some thoughts on that? Okay. So Toda is perhaps the best example of where details could take on much deeper and richer meaning. Usually to eat a karban, so if it's a sin offering, you have one day and one night. The Kohanim have one day and one night to eat from the karban. For Shlamim, usually you have two days and one night. Now, the Thanksgiving work, the Todah, is in most respects just a subset of the Shlamim. So in theory, you should have two days to eat it, and all of a sudden, you only have one day. And presumably, it's not because there's anything sin-like about the Todah. So what's going on that the Todah has a restricted amount of time? Uh, another unusual aspect is usually there's no chametz associated with the Mikdash. I mean, it's not only on Pesach that we're resistant of chametz. We are, we're, are, are as well in the sacrificial order. And one of the exceptions is a carpent todah where some of the bread is chametz. So the Barbanel and the Nitziv say the same explanation, that one brings a Thanksgiving offering because uh, one has had some sense of salvation, something great has happened, and we'd like to share our thanks with the community. And it's like hal- a birkat hagomel in a in Yeah, a very good, good, good analogy. And the halacha kind of forces you to make it communal. Like, even if you have a big family, it's going to be kind of hard to eat all the meat in one day. And that one-day restriction forces you to share, and you'll tell other people the story. 
And that's how we would like uh, the Todah to exist, which again, to me, has tremendous impact beyond the sacrificial order. Like we all have moments of intense gratitude. And maybe there should be a sense not only of thanking the benefactor, but a sense of sharing the bounty as well. That that would be a crucial part of what Hakarda Tov means. And here, both the Barbanel and the Tziv see that in what seems like an arbitrary technical detail about how long one has to eat the carbon. I think that, you know, it makes me think about, uh, you know, a brit milah or, you know, the reception after or a simchat or all those. But it makes me think of all those moments. I think that today in our world of sharing, we actually, we're doing this behidur. We've, uh, we've really taken on this idea of, of sharing our, our thanks and sometimes other emotions as well with, uh, with the broader, with the broader community. But I think that that's a really interesting idea. I think also it's important because it's not always clear to define what the, definite nature of the korban toda is right meaning it sort of gets lost in the in the broader grouping of all the of all the korbanot there's a really interesting story actually i, I can't resist telling it uh there was a mathematician named paul erdish uh who wrote a lot of papers and erdish once wrote a check to a young man who wanted to go to harvard and study math who didn't have the money and when the fellow got older and uh, said that, uh, you know, I have money now, I'd like to pay you back. Erdős said, I don't really need the money. Uh, give it to some other young mathematician. And I think it's often a way to think about Hakar Sometimes you can't really pay back the benefactor. And the way to do it would be to share it, share the bounty with somebody else. So I think uh, it's just a good story aligning with uh, our theme for the Carbon Toda today. Yeah, that's great. I think there's a phrase that says something like, either pay it back or pay it forward. Right. So I think that that's a, that's a really beautiful story. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's always a pleasure. You always do an amazing job of illuminating modern questions using all of our sources. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.